me start over. These days, there are a decent number of people who will listen to this sermon uh, afterward. Uh, either on YouTube, they'll watch the video and might skip to the sermon, or on our podcast where you only hear the sermon. To those people, real quick, I want to say, I would encourage you to go to YouTube and to watch the service and watch the communion meditation because uh, John and I did not plan this, but that communion meditation sets up really well the conversation that we're about to have and is going to give me a very helpful metaphor for us to talk about. So it'll make more sense if you've seen that. Obviously, all of you here have, so we can continue into the sermon. Um, What we've been doing this summer is we've been talking about why we gather on a regular basis and why we do the things that we do when we gather. We put a lot of effort into making sure that we meet together regularly. We put a lot of effort throughout COVID and came up with a lot of creative ways to do it. And we've been talking about why it's worth all that effort and why we do the specific things in the service that we do. So the conclusion that we came to based on scripture is that God has promised to be specially present with his people when they gather in his name. And so God is present with us in this place in a special way, not because of anything special about the building, but because of the people who are here and the purpose for which we are gathered. And scripture tells us that there is, when God is present, there's power in what God's people do. In fact, Paul will give people special instructions to do certain things when they're gathering because those things should be done in the special presence of God. And so what we've done over the course of the summer is we've talked about each part of our gathering and why we do it. We've talked about worship, singing, confession and reconciliation, communion, uh, the, the collection, the prayers, and the sermon. And today we are talking about the sending, which is a phrase we don't use all that often, but it's a phrase that pastors will use to describe the way that we conclude our service. And for us, it's a prayer and four sentences. Surely there isn't a sermon's worth to say about something like that. Oh, ye of little faith. Um, What I'm going to say today is that the sending is one of the most important parts of our service, and it it actually sets us up, and the way we take, the the way we uh, respond to the sending will determine the value of what we do in our gathering. And this is actually going to serve as a hinge between this series and the series we're going to start next week for the fall called Eating with Jesus. We're going to go through the book of Luke and look at every time that Jesus eats with someone and talk about how, what Jesus did at meals with people. But today we're talking about the way we conclude our service. And so we're going to first of all talk about, we're just going to describe what we do in the sending in our service. And then we're going to talk about what function the sending serves, what role it plays in our service. And then finally, we're going to talk about what it does to be sent out at the end of the service, what uh, the power that is there in that part of it. So let's start by describing what happens when we do our sending. There are three parts of our sending. The first part is a blessing. A blessing is a common way, uh, it's common in the Bible as part of saying goodbye to people, as part of sending people out. And the main place that I looked into, we don't have like the scripts that people use for church in the Bible. But we do have when Jesus uh, sent out his disciples at uh, at the ascension. And in Luke it says that he was blessing them when he ascended. And blessing is an important part of, of what people, God's people do when they're together. In fact, in Numbers, God specifically tells the, uh, he tells the priests what they should say when they bless people. God doesn't actually dictate 
the lines that the priests are supposed to say for pretty much anything else, but he tells them word for word what to say when they bless people. And that's the most common blessing that we use. Does the Lord bless you and keep you? The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God specifically instructed his priests to bless his people in his presence. And there's meaning in that. There's power in that. There's significance in that when God's people are blessed in his name, in his presence. The second thing that we do in our, in our sending is a prayer. This is also a common thing as we involve God and we invoke God and ask him to participate in what we're about to do. We invoke him at the beginning of the service to be with us and inspire the way we worship, and then we invoke him at the end as we are about to set out on what comes after the service. This is something that Paul did on his journey to Jerusalem when he met with the Ephesians, uh, and everybody knew he was going to get in trouble when he went to Jerusalem. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. They spoke to God one more time, invoked him one more time, and asked him to... Uh, to be with them in what was about to happen. And finally, our sending involves a commission. When Jesus sent out his disciples at the end of his time on earth, he gave them a commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. They are sent out with a mission, with a job to do, right? And this is, this is why it's important. Sometimes, sometimes we'll casually end services by saying things like, see you next week, and that kind of thing. And it's important for us to distinguish. This is why we use the word sending, so, to bring back the, the uh, metaphor of the firehouse, there are two ways, at least, of two manners of leaving the firehouse when you're a volunteer, right? There's you leave at the end of your shift, and you go home and do whatever you want, and there's you leave on a call, and you have a specific thing that you're supposed to do, right? Those are two different ways that you leave the building, and those are two different ways that we can think of leaving this building that we leave to go home and do whatever we want, or we leave because we've been sent out on a particular mission. So when we end the service, our, our commission is stay healthy, stay hopeful, and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. It used to be, which is very common, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We added the stay healthy, stay hopeful, because that became part of our, our pattern during COVID. But notice that in there is a mission. Don't just go do whatever you want. We are told to go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We are sent with a mission. And that's a very important thing to put in our brains as we leave church. And that's mainly what we're going to talk about today. Is that, that mentality of leaving for a mission, not leaving to go home. So, in order to talk about the significance, the role of the sending... I want, this is also going to kind of be our, our conclusion of this whole series. We're going to talk about, we're going to put the whole thing together. So I want to start by taking a look at our vision statement. If you have not been here as long as I have, 
then you will not know the story of how this came about. So let me catch you up just a little bit. When my predecessor retired, he had been here for a while, and so this congregation decided that they needed to spend some time figuring out what direction they were, they were meant to head in and just kind of figure out who they are and what their vision is. And so they spent time as a congregation putting together this vision statement. And it was put together before they went out to look for a minister, and I was called with this vision statement in place. And you'll see it in different places around our church building or in the bulletin. And it says this, Turner Christian Church exists to share Jesus in creative and intentional ways through connecting with God and his church, growing in faith and love, and serving our community and world. There's nothing earth-shattering or shocking in there. In fact, I've seen other churches with almost the exact same key phrases and things like that, which it shouldn't be shocking, right? You shouldn't be shocked by a church's mission statement or vision statement. It should be based in Scripture. But it's, it's powerful and it's helpful so that when I was called here, I didn't have to come in and tell Turner Christian Church which direction they needed to go. I had never been a senior pastor before. I was a bad choice for that. But I could come in and be a part of the team and, and help to lead us in going the direction that this church had chosen for itself. And as you look at the things that we do in our worship service, you may notice that everything we do fits into our vision statement. I'm actually going to give you a little, not a test, but an, an activity. Do you have this on your sermon notes? And I'm going to give you a second now to take out your writing utensil and draw lines to connect the parts of the service to the parts of the vision statement that you think they most fulfill. I know if you think hard enough about it, you can connect all of them to all of them. Just go with your first instinct, the, the thing that it most, the, the purpose that it most immediately fills. I want you to go all the way down. I'll give you a little bit to do that. a typo on your share Jesus in creative intentional ways. Okay. So I'm going to talk through our service and talk about how it fulfills each of these parts of our vision statement. Right? So we start by, with our call to worship, we are summoned to gather for the purpose of worship. And if you remember from that sermon, we talked about how worship means uh, expressing respect, loyalty, and love for God. And so we recognize that we are in his presence as we are called to worship, and so we respond by committing ourselves to demonstrating our loyalty, love, and respect for God. And we begin with singing. We talked about how singing is this emotional expression, this, this, this uh, way of showing from our hearts our gratitude and love to God, which is an appropriate, expression, an appropriate reaction to standing in the presence of our God and having the opportunity to be in his presence. And so there is this expression that is not just in our brains, but it's in our hearts that comes out of our singing, right? And that's our immediate reaction is, is joy and, and, um, and gratitude. But if we're honest, we also recognize that parts of us don't belong in the presence of God. Perhaps quite a lot of us doesn't belong in the presence of God. 
And there are barriers, there are things that keep us from, from being who God calls us to be. And there are things that keep us from being brothers and sisters. And so our next reaction is to confess. As we stand in the presence of God, along with Isaiah and other figures in the Bible, we recognize we don't completely belong here because of these things in us. And so we confess them, and we ask God to reconcile us with him and with each other so that we can remove the barriers that, that get in the way, so that God can remove those barriers, and we can be a people, and we can be connected with God. And we celebrate that by then gathering at the table. Right? The confession and reconciliation prepares us for the table so that we can join at the table with, without hesitation. And we eat the meal that is a celebration of the generosity of God. If you remember sitting at the tables when we did that and celebrating the generosity of God. All of that, all of that is designed to connect us with God and with each other. So that first stage of the service, it all, it, it's about bringing us together into the kingdom. And it all leads up to that pinnacle moment when we gather at the table with no barriers, with nothing between us, and we are, we are truly God's people in his presence. Once we've taken the meal together, then we take up the collection. You remember what we talked about, the fact that the collection, God, God, the collection isn't just where we, you know, we give, we pay the God tax. Like, we have 90% and God gets 10%. Remember, God, God has you, which means God has all your money. What you're doing when you give to the collection is that you're giving part of God's money into God's particular, one of the causes that God cares about, which is the, the, manner, the way the church cares for each other and accomplishes its mission. And so the collection is a way that we serve each other. And then, once we've taken the collection, we go into the prayers. And the prayers are also a way that we serve each other because we use this opportunity, this audience we have with the creator of the universe to intercede for each other and for our world. Just like Moses did. Moses had physical proximity to God on Mount Sinai, and he used that opportunity to, in, to intercede, to, to ask God to forgive Israel. And so as we take up the collection and as we say the prayers, we are serving others. And finally, then we take time to listen. We give God an opportunity to speak during the time of the sermon. And as we listen to the sermon and as we share that time together, the, the word of God is spoken and it gets in us and it changes us and it teaches us and we grow. And so the sermon serves that growing purpose. Now, like I said, you could argue that any of these connect with all of them, and that's good. There should be that level of overlap. But now here's the question. What does the sending connect with? Well, here I need to confess something to you. I've been missing a verb. You'll notice that as we've applied this vision statement, we've focused on three key verbs, connecting, growing, and serving. And that's what we, that we have the symbols for. We have them in our foyer. You have them in your bulletin. We have them, you know, we focus on those three. But there's four verbs. Technically five, but existing is not the one I'm talking about. We, all of these things, the connecting, the growing, and the serving, are ways that we share Jesus. See that very important verb? Turner Christian Church exists to share Jesus. 
And that's what the sending is about. The sending is about our mission to share. Because the sharing is the only one that we can't really do here sufficiently. We share as people come in to visit, but if the only way we're sharing uh, Jesus is to the people who come into the building on a Sunday morning, we're not really sharing it. So the sending is how we fulfill the part of our mission that is to share, to share Jesus. So I want to talk now about how how we fit together these two pieces, because there's a tension that we have in, depending on who you talk to and what churches you go to, and the way people view their life, their, their Christian walk and their priorities. We have two kind of extremes. One extreme says that as long as I go to church, it doesn't matter what I do the rest of the week, because it's all just about going to church and going through the service and paying my dues, and, and, you know, and then I'm fine. The other end of it says, you know, church doesn't really matter because I can do it on my own. It's, it's what, all that matters is the way I'm treating people in the day-to-day. It doesn't matter whether I'm part of anything organized, whether I'm part of the church. We have those kind of extremes where we say one matters or the other matters. And what I want to talk about now is how, because we've been really building up the importance of the gathering for the past two months, and I want us to have a healthy and biblical way of connecting these two parts of our lives. So I want to talk about the biblical logic of gathering and sending. What we see, this pattern of how God works through his people. The first thing we see that God does with his people is he gathers his people to bless them with his presence. This is God's modus operandi. This is his MO. This is what he does. He gathers his people to bless them with his presence. Starts on page two of the Bible, right? Uh, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. Later, he put Eve there. He put them in the garden as this special location on earth. And one of the things that made that special, we find out in chapter 3, is that God would walk in the garden. So he put Adam and Eve in this garden because that was a special place to experience his presence on earth. Adam and Eve messed that up, and then God put into action this plan to restore it through Israel, to restore his relationship with humanity, what we find in the law of Moses is that the intention was again to bring, to gather God's people into his presence. So he promises them in Leviticus, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your people and you will be my God. He's actually using the same language from Eden about walking. Did I mix it up? What did I, did I say you I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. There we go. Sorry. So (laughs) the point is that he's establishing that same principle again, right? He gathers the Israelites, and he has them live in his presence and get a special experience of his presence. That's what made them different from the other nations. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus had a whole bunch of people following him, but at one point he went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. A special closed group of people got a special experience of Jesus' presence. And then we talked about how the same thing happens in the church. There's God's people to gather together. Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathering my name, there I am with them. That there's a special experience of God's presence in the gathering of his people. So there's this idea that God invests special time 
with his people. He gathers them together, and there's a unique experience there. The question is, why do they get that unique experience? Because we're tempted to think it's because we're special, because God likes us more than everybody else, so we're the ones he wants to spend time with, and we're going to keep this to ourselves, and we're going to keep out people who aren't worthy of it. But biblically, that's not actually what's happening in those special gatherings. What we find is that God uses the gatherings to teach and to train his people to live in his blessing. During that time, he is training them. He is teaching them. So, for instance, the law of Moses. He gives the law of Moses to his people as they live in his presence to learn how to live in his presence well and how to reflect who he is and how to be his people. Jesus taught the disciples in special ways. And in the church, we've read this passage before, when we talk about the way God equips the church, it says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We gather together not just to, enjoy, to bask in God's presence, but to be changed by it. And that change is key because of the last step in this process, which is that God sends his people out to share his blessings with the world. He doesn't give us a special experience because we're better or more important or more valuable than others. He gives a special experience to his people so that they can then share that experience with the rest of the world. This is what God does every time, including in the Garden of Eden. Because notice, he put them in the Garden of Eden. Were they supposed to stay there? Was humanity supposed to stay in the Garden of Eden? Well, in Genesis 1, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Were they supposed to stay there? No. And in fact, here's an interesting thing that we miss in Genesis, in the creation story. It says God created the world good. It doesn't say he made it perfect. And it actually doesn't make sense for him to have made it perfect because it says that he tells them to go out and subdue the earth. So it was good, but there was more that could be done with it. And humanity's job was to go out and do that in God's name. So even from the very beginning, God had this, this process of starting in one place with a special experience and sending his people out to shape the world according to that, according to his will and according to his presence. It's the same thing that he was doing with Israel. He tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and who, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. When Jesus called the disciples, he says he went up on a mountainside and called to those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Those 12 disciples, they weren't the best 12. They weren't the only people that mattered. They didn't get secret knowledge, which was what later Gnostics would say, that they got secret knowledge and nobody else got. That wasn't the point. They were, they were, everything they were given was to share with others. That is why God gives us this special experience of his presence, is so that we can be transformed by it and share that with others. In fact, the Bible is very consistent that a gathering is only truly valuable if it is shared. 
what happens in this gathering is not just for us. This is Jesus' primary complaint about the temple when he comes into Jerusalem. He taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That den of robbers is the idea that oh, we're all going to huddle up in the temple, just us, just God's inside crew, and we're not going to let anybody else in, and we're going to stay safe from the rest of the world. And maybe we'll go out for the rest of the week, the other six and a half days of the week, and do whatever, but we can come back here and huddle up in our special experience of God, and it'll be just for us. That's the den of robbers. And that's not what the temple was supposed to be. The temple, because it was a fixed place, was meant to be open to everybody journeying to it. But this is, this is one of the most important things that God uses to measure the value of people's worship. God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring fellowship, choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. If their worship is confined to the place of worship, it's noise and stench, and it upsets God. Because that kind of worship is not consistent. It, it's hypocritical because it's not consistent with what we're saying when we worship. It's not consistent with what the values that we're expressing when we worship. And so James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the religion that God values, in other words, is taking the generosity that we learn and express here when we take the collection, when we eat at the table, and sharing it out in the world rather than letting the patterns of the world shape us in other ways. Rather than being learning from the world to be selfish, we should learn from the gathering to be generous. The author of Hebrews says, Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. He is pleased with the things that happen when we share the gathering outside of the gathering. This is why the sending is so important, because even though it's very brief, it reminds us of that critical part of what it means to be God's followers. The sending reminds us of our mission to share God's presence with the world. If you imagine it as a bell, it's not the bell that tells you your shift is over. It's the bell that tells you you have to go out because there's something to do. Because here's the thing. We live in a world where that alarm bell is just constantly going. We live in communities where that alarm bell that says that there's, there's broken things going on is just always going. There's... Every time we leave this place, there is work to do. And as we are told to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord, it reminds us that there is peace to make and there is work to do and that this world desperately needs what we do in here together.
So I want to give you just a couple of, of principles to take home from this. Here's where I want to, to land. First of all, I want you to remember that when we gather, we experience the real world of God's kingdom and presence. One of the, one of the things that will happen is when we get into the entertainment mindset, that this is, this is, we wouldn't say it's entertainment, but we start to think of it that way. We talk about that as the real world, and this is an escape. We treat this like going to a concert or watching a movie or something that gives you a break from the real world. I hope that coming here alleviates your, you know, the things, I hope that you're able to leave burdens at the door as you come together. I really do. But I want you to know that that losing of, that leaving behind of burdens, that's how it's supposed to be. That's real life. That's what human beings were made for. This is not, this is not a break. It, it does, it is a break because we get to get, take a break from the brokenness to some degree. But this is the real world. This is the closest we get to the way, what God made Adam and Eve for. And this is the closest we get to how we're going to spend eternity. And so the, the danger is that we come here and we think, well, that was a nice distraction. That was really energizing. That really recharged my batteries. But now I'm going to go back into the real world the way it is. And in the real world, we know that we have to make compromises, for moral compromises. We know we have to do the, like the things we learn here, they don't necessarily work out there, but it's nice to pretend for a little while. That's not, that's not true. The gathering of God's people is the closest we get to reality. And if we remember that as we go out, then we'll remember as we face brokenness, encounter brokenness in the world, this is not how it's supposed to be. This isn't even how it has to be. We know because we've experienced it that there is a reality deeper and better than this and that God offers it to us through Jesus. Jesus can change this. Jesus can transform this brokenness that I see, that I've encountered. Jesus, can, we can bring the reality of our, experience, of, of our experience of God's presence into those places. The Lord's table doesn't have to be the only table where we live, where we express that generosity and that welcome and that openness to people. Jesus didn't restrict that to a weekly gathering. That was how he treated every table. We can treat our own tables that way. We can treat the table at work that way. In the... In the um, in the break room or in the lunch room at school. This is the real world. And the value of our gathering depends on whether or not we share it with the world. If we keep all of this just for ourselves, just for the initiated, just for those who already know when to come here, then we're not, actually do, that, that, we're not actually fulfilling the mission of God. We're not using this experience for the reason that God gives it to us. God doesn't show up here so that we can hoard it for ourselves. He shows up here so we can share this with others. It's interesting. We, we generally tend to assume 
that the gospel is, when we think about spreading the gospel, we think about preaching often, or street evangelists, things like that. I've been reading, I've read a stack of books for the evangelism class. One of them I read is by a sociologist talking about how the, um, how Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire in just a, a few centuries, which is shocking. And as he did his analysis, he said that it's not quite as shocking, if, if it was done by preachers, it's shocking. But it's actually not quite as shocking if they, people were doing it through relationships. He said, and he said, actually, uh, outside of Scripture, there are no documented cases of mass conversions through preaching. There's mass revivals. But people don't go from not having a relationship with God to having a relationship with God in mass numbers through preaching alone. They, that happens through relationships. And it was actually, there's no, nothing really earth-shattering about the numbers if people just shared the gospel with their friends in the Roman Empire, for the Roman Empire to become mainly Christian in a couple hundred years. That's the way the gospel spreads, is by people sharing this experience with others. And so if what we do here is going to have value, it has to be shared. And I'm not, this is not a, this is not a, a tongue lashing I'm giving you, okay? I'm not doing this because you guys are all terrible at this or anything like that, or like things are going to change around here. This is just, this is what we're really focusing on right now. Because we can't spend all this time talking about the value of what happens here without recognizing how it changes out there. And so where I want to land today is to say that sharing the blessings of the gathering can and will change the world. It is changing the world. It has been changing the world. The way there are, you can easily document the way the principles of Christian gathering have transformed the world. The fact that men and women worship together in the only, the only place in the Roman Empire where men and women worship together, where slaves and masters worship together, where people of different classes and different ethnicities worship together, and how that transformed the identities of people in the Western world. Because it broke down all these barriers that used to be impenetrable. All these different things that happened simply because of the way we worship together. So as we share what happens in our gathering with the world, our communities, our relationships, our town, our schools, our county, our state, our nation, our world can and will be transformed. Amen? That's what we're called to do. As we close, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to encourage you that we have, every week at the end of the service, we give you a chance to respond. Because we believe that every disciple, every person is called to take a step in discipleship. Every disciple, uh, when, you're, when you're fully engaged, you will be connecting regularly with God, you will be growing, you will be serving, and you will be sharing. And I don't know where you are on that list, but God is calling you to take that next step. And if you, are, if you would like to know how you can take the next step wherever you are at in your journey, put that on your connection card, throw it in the box. You can go to our website, turnerchristianchurch.com next and tell us, just let us know, and we'll follow up with you, and we'd love to walk you through whatever next step God is putting on your heart, whether that's um, getting connected with one of our small groups, or with one of our service teams, or becoming a member of the church. If you want to become a Christian, don't put that on the card. Just come up. Talk to us today. Today is the best day to do that. You can also put it on your card, but please come up today and do that. Um, but I ask you, as we stand and sing our final song, to consider what is the next step that God is calling you to take.